Welcome to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. In this new series from DLA Piper, we explore how infrastructure, transport and construction are adjusting to a post-COVID-19 world. We examine the biggest challenges ahead and how businesses must evolve to meet them, both in the short and in the longer term. We discuss the impact on digital infrastructure, transport in a world of social distancing, aviation's long road to recovery, boosting construction and sustainable mobility. My name is Howard Bassford. I'm a partner at the law firm DLA Piper and I am the UK Head of Infrastructure, Construction and Transport Sector Group. I'm joined today by John Turton, who is the Head of Transport in Arup's Business Advisory Service, and Rob Smith, who is DLA Piper's International Co-Head of Road and Rail. Today, we're going to be looking at some of the key learning points from the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that has affected the information and cases required in order to justify new infrastructure projects and other investment in our transport systems. We'll also be thinking about the way that interacts with other government initiatives, such as the climate change agenda and the need for justification for taxation change in order to support infrastructure investment. John, I wonder if you would like to highlight some of the projects that are likely to be susceptible to this and the way that this is going to affect case making for schemes in the immediate future. Sure, thank you, Howard. I will be delighted to do so. So just thinking on a national basis, as we all know, we have a very significant national infrastructure plan with some huge um, nationally significant projects in there. From a transport and a rail perspective, you've got things like HS2, you've got things like East-West Rail, you've got things like Crossrail 2. Now, HS2 is already ongoing, but the other projects will be subject to reviews in relation to the impact of the pandemic on their, their case, I'm sure. And then at a more localised level, you have projects like Cambridge Automated Metro, which is a very significant proposal to deliver a, a driverless metro system throughout the city of, of Cambridge and the Greater Peterborough area. And then uh, in the north of the country, you've got big projects like Northern Powerhouse Rail being promoted by Transport for the North, which has been um, on the books for quite some time. And again, I think will be susceptible to the impact of changes as a result of the COVID pandemic. So, John, having identified that there are so many schemes that could be affected by this, what are the accounting considerations and the approaches that we're going to have to alter in light of the COVID pandemic? I think one of the key issues, Howard, is the in the appraisal methodology that we use and the length of the appraisal period that is considered appropriate for assessing project benefits. So typically we use 60 years at present to measure the benefits of a project. Um, however, as we know, many projects have potential to deliver benefits well beyond, beyond that time horizon. If you look at some of the UK's rail network today, most of it is well over 60 years old and continues to be used and deliver benefits every day. But those longer term benefits are not currently included in scheme appraisals, which is largely down to an impact of the methodology that we apply. So we, because we discount the, val- the the future values back to the present day. The effect of discounting beyond something like 40 or 50 years out in the future means that the, even though the benefits are there, when you translate them into today's money, they're very, very low value. Um, you know, in particular, give you some examples. I've worked on projects where I've tried to look at benefits over, say, a 120-year period, but anything beyond about 50 
is relatively worthless in the appraisal methodology that we apply in the UK today. And it's probably less relevant for transport because they tend to have a very good case in, in shorter time frames anyway. But certainly for projects like renewable energy or tidal power schemes where they have a very long useful economic life, we systematically ignore those long, long-term benefits at the moment in the appraisal. And that's not for want of not understanding it. It's a methodological issue with the approach that we use. Um, if you take tidal power as an example intuitively, we would all understand that in 60 years' time, having a source of totally green, pretty much free to generate energy must intuitively have a significant value into the future. But when we do an appraisal today, we, we set that value at a very, very low level. And that's something we need to think very carefully about in planning and creating cases for schemes. Are we really assessing the benefits over an appropriate time frame that these assets can really deliver for society? So, Howard, we've been through difficult times before and we've always been able to plan successfully for the future. But what is different about business planning and making a case for a scheme this time around? We have, you're right, been through all sorts of global events and they've included recessions, economic problems associated with uh, conflict, civil unrest and so forth worldwide. And through these events, infrastructure projects have continued to be brought forward. So, uh, for instance, taking the global financial crisis of the late 2000s, a project like Mersey Gateway had to consider the suppression of uh, use predicted by, as a result of the global financial crisis and look forward to being implemented in what was uh, a position where it was less certain about the throughput of the bridge. In practice, the infrastructure is well used now, but at the time that had to be taken into account in the forecasting for the project. Similarly, we've had the dot-com bubble, which uh, burst in September 2011, and the simultaneous 9-11 attacks. And there are changes underway, though, which are associated with the dislocation caused by COVID-19, so that Recently, City AM was predicting that 800,000 core jobs could be lost in central London. And the question is, what will that impact have upon people's behaviour, how people will travel? And post-COVID, we're seeing potentially a very different uh, landscape. And that's something which, for instance, government is trying to uh, tackle by trying to get civil servants back into the centre of London. All of this does mean that the COVID crisis is different to preceding crises and their impacts upon travel, throughput, the fare box and so on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Howard. I mean, we talked a little bit about recessions there and recessions historically tend to be pretty short-lived, um, as do some of the impacts of some of the other events that you, you talked about. They don't necessarily transform the way we live and the way we work over a long time frame. Whereas this pandemic um, over the last 18 months or two years is a, is a change event that will have a, a lasting legacy forever, I think. It's accelerated a pace of change towards more flexible and digital working for a lot of people that was coming, but very, very, very slowly and has happened at a much faster pace now than it ever otherwise would have done. So while no one really knows what will happen, there have been enough surveys done of various organisations and employees now to be fairly clear that it seems very unlikely that we all go back to just working the old way of doing things, i.e. the whole nine to five, five days a week in the office kind of working, particularly in a professional services environment that, that we all work in. So the million dollar question in this scenario is, 
what will the new normal become? And I think that's a, it's a very difficult thing to understand, to think about. My view is that it'll be a much wider range of normal than there ever used to be. I think different people will approach it in a very different way to suit their own lifestyles and their own choices. Um, so I think it's quite likely that the, the bog standard nine to five routine will disappear. And I think companies and places and people will need to adapt accordingly, as will our infrastructure planning and infrastructure development processes. And I think that's a, that's a very good example of the issue you now face with business plans in the in the world we have been in business planning. You were able to base it on people's behaviours, and whilst people's behaviours might change, as being a general certainty that you could plan and model on the basis of what people would be doing over the next ten, twenty, thirty years. Whereas, for exactly the reasons you've just given, John, we have no certainty now on actually how people will behave in one year, five years, ten years' time. And how then do we actually predict what the actual needs of the project are? How do we predict pe- how people's behaviours will sit? And will they continue to be changed? And what will that no- normal look like? And will it also lead to other changes? So a lot of the time people talk about the changes in the way people work, but that also leads to changes in the way people spend their leisure time. And you're seeing that already in the way that people use trains and use buses, that they, in some cases, at points in the pandemic, there have actually been greater use of public transport in some areas, whereas there's been real drop-off, for example, in rail. And when people do go back into the office, if you have working patterns where people are working four days a week instead of five days a week in the office, that's immediately a 20% drop-off in patronage if everyone works on that basis. And that raises some real questions about how many people will use any project in the future, which can't easily be predicted based on the patterns of the past pre-pandemic. Yeah, I'm currently advising a client actually on a railway station project at the moment and as a part of that we're helping to develop and understand the case and the business plan associated with the station. And what we've seen as the process started pre-COVID and is now ongoing through COVID is just the level of increased uncertainty in the rail passenger forecast going forward. And the other thing that we've we've seen is that the, the forecast peak use of the station has now moved forward in time by around 20 years actually before it gets to peak saturation. So it's a massive change in the context of that station itself. Um, and I concur with, with the point you made there, Rob, the, the general views I see in the market from talking to our clients are general expectations of something like 20% of public transport trips potentially disappearing over the longer term. But alongside the number of trips reducing, and I think rail is more likely to be more significantly affected than bus because of the nature of those journeys and the nature of people that are traveling uh, are slightly different but as well as the number of trips reducing i think the spread of demand is going to be considerably wider as well and i think that makes planning much much harder i spent 15 years um, getting on a train to london probably twice a week on average from yorkshire and they often spent another three or four days a week on trains traveling all around the country to see clients, to attend meetings, to work on projects. I'm now in a situation where I haven't caught a train anywhere since March 2020. And it's very unlikely that I will go back to my old way of working because I've learned that it isn't fully necessary. And to not go back to those old habits is actually a lot better for the environment. It's much more sustainable and better for my carbon footprint. And as a society, you know, one of the key things that we're all focused on at the moment is climate change. We see a lot in the news about that. We have a lot of challenging targets around net zero. And if we're to achieve net zero, it will need everyone in the country to think more sustainably about their travel choices. Transport accounts for about um, 27% of CO2 emissions in the UK, but that's based on 2019 data. And that is a very, very significant amount that we will have to try and manage 
down a lot of that is road, probably about 60, 70% is road, but it's a bunch of other sources as well. But the key impact for me as well is that from a financial point of view, if 20% of trips disappear, and that means 20% of rail fares disappearing compared to 2019, that is something like two and a half billion pounds worth of revenue missing from the system. And that is a huge challenge to overcome whilst maintaining the kind of level of services that we really need to support the economy. And it's not just a question of the maintenance of the level of services as they stand. It's also money that isn't available for investment. And so there is a real change there. We've got to ask ourselves, how will the world look for long distance rail and air travel for business travellers in particular? As John says, frequently those trips will become unnecessary um, and instead those types of modes are going to be more attractive, perhaps more used for leisure, and that is where growth may continue. And we've got to ask ourselves, how are other countries emerging from the pandemic? What are the investments that are being made? And what are the changes that we can expect to see? We've got to ask ourselves, what will happen where restrictions are released and then shortly afterwards reimposed? In those circumstances, that may have a deadening effect upon uptake of transport, and that, again, will affect fare box predictions and our ability to plan for the future. And all of this means, with all of these uncertainties, that it's uh, much more important that policy and other drivers of need are considered in making a case for a scheme. These are going to become questions of much greater political will, policy is going to need to drive behaviours, it's going to work very well for rail and roads, less so perhaps for aviation development, but the policy approach to use of public transport, to mode shift, to electrification of fleets for the domestic uh, car and short haul freight, all of those sorts of things are going to have to be policy driven. And then having done that, it will still be necessary to consider the infrastructure, the networks, which are going to be required for, for instance, the uh, massive expansion of homes that is predicted for the UK uh, up and down the length of the country. As a result of those, there's going to have to be infrastructure provided so that the last mile, first mile and the longer distance travel remains possible. And that ultimately is going to involve policy trade-offs policy decisions uh, where the economics don't necessarily lead the way. And Robert John, when we have that gap where there is a missing set of information where policy does need some support, what can we do with surveys and how does that help with scenario planning? Because surely we have to have some evidence that supports the policy decisions we're going to need to take. From my perspective, um, I think there is a potential problem, which is, can we rely on surveys in the same way we did in the past? People are unpredictable, but actually everything that we've talked about to date in this conversation is also a problem for everyone you survey. So in, in the past world, if you said to someone, how would you behave in these circumstances, they would have a fairly good idea on the basis of their normal life and the status quo that they sat in. Whereas now, actually, if you ask someone how they think they will be working in six months' time, 
you will probably get a load of caveats to any answers they give. Yeah, sure. I fully agree with those, those shortcomings of the surveys, Rob. And they can be very unreliable, especially in a situation like this where people don't understand what their futures look like. Because we, we all honestly don't all know how, how the future will look and how we will work going forward. However, I suppose it's the best thing that we have to help us understand people's current thinking is to ask the questions and to look at the results as long as we understand the frailty of those results. And, and I suppose in that context... The potential benefit is it allows you to understand how people think they might behave and then looking at the scenarios that could arise allows you to at least consider what the outcomes might be. And and certainly from my perspective over the last year and certainly in terms of government policy that appears to be where there's greater testing of the fact there could be a wider range of outcomes and see whether the business case you put forward at least delivers in a wide range of those scenarios that could arise understanding that there may not be a simple prediction of the future that you can rely on as a central case now in the way that you could a few years ago. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And when you were planning for aviation and rail in particular, um, prior to two years ago, it was very, very straightforward, actually. We could effectively track trips and numbers to GDP growth in the economy. Um, and we had done for quite a long time. And that's not possible anymore. The, the whole dynamic, the connection between the forecasting has been broken. And there's a lot of news, there's a lot of information out there at the moment on making use of different scenarios. And when you're looking at any key transport project in particular, now you would do more scenario planning than you ever used to and looking at a wider range of potential outcomes. The challenge is how helpful wide scenario analysis actually is because the current forecasts and the current scenarios are so wide apart, you can never deliver a solution that actually works at either end of the spectrum. So you're still tied into the central case, which of course is still uncertain. So... The scenario planning and scenario use is useful to one extent to help you understand what would happen, but it doesn't necessarily solve a problem, in my opinion. We also have, I think, real change afoot, not just as a result of the uncertainties created by COVID, but by other policy nudges. So the green agenda, the electrification of the vehicle fleet, considerations of that nature mean that the connection between costs that people see themselves paying and the transport modes that they use will become less transparent, more complicated. A person can easily see the fare they pay for a train ticket or a bus ticket. They can see how much their season ticket costs. It's less straightforward to see how they're paying for things with road fund license. And then as we move to a situation where we have different economic incentives applying to electric cars, whether they will remain exempt from road fund license, whether they are going to be subsidized for the foreseeable future, those sorts of considerations are going to be important from a funding point of view. The tax levied upon electricity is lower than the tax levied on petrol and diesel at the petrol pump. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the government going to move to a different taxation model where it looks at um, payments through electricity bills and then how that can be transport focused or whether it uh, relates to the wider economy through simply increasing taxation on energy. Other questions to consider and all of this goes to the question of demand and forecasting and understanding the consequences of change. Will the government move to different models for charging for use of roads? That could have advantages in making uh, pricing of transport more transparent. But on the other hand, it may make it less attractive 
to users so that they tend to favour public transport again. Yeah, I think you've made a really, really good point there, Howard, about the commercial and the economic implications of some of the planning decisions that we make around transport infrastructure going forward. Um, as an organisation at Arup, we do a lot of work with clients who are looking at um, effectively the energy transition is what we tend to call it in transport, which is your electric vehicles, your hydrogen, your moving to for, for personal use, but also then your, your heavy goods vehicles and your buses. And the one th- common theme that goes through all of this, including things like sustainable aviation fuel, is s- cleaner solutions are more expensive at the moment, and they are very difficult to make work commercially. So if you look at a a bus and a very very simple example um a hydrogen bus costs a huge amount more money than a diesel bus at the moment but it can only carry the same number of passengers and so therefore it can only generate the same volume of revenue now passengers are not going to be prepared to pay higher bus fares because their bus is cleaner and so you have to be very careful about trying to transfer the price of climate change solutions to those disadvantaged people who are in a position where they can't afford to pay for it that's something that a lot of authorities, a lot of places are looking at at the minute is how do you bridge that commercial gap to make the right choice from a climate change perspective? And John, I think you make a very good point there about the need as you, you're making these changes to actually look at the level of intervention by the state that might be necessary to make these fairly material changes. And you can see that actually in the way that in the UK, the approach to the public transport network has necessarily changed over the last 18 months as a result of COVID. So if you asked two years ago about the UK approach to public transport funding compared to many other European countries, it was far more led by effectively um, private sector operators and their willingness to take risk on demand, both in the bus industry, where the vast majority of the bus network was effectively private sector operators taking revenue risk, and in the rail sector, where the vast majority of rail franchises had significant revenue risk resting with the private sector. That hasn't been the case since March last year, with government having to step in, in the case of rail and bus, in different ways to provide support. And so we have seen that with public transport services continuing throughout the pandemic and being heavily supported through government subsidy to ensure that they could continue to provide necessary services. As a result, that raises a very interesting policy question of exactly that. Is public transport purely a commercial activity or is it actually an economic and social enabler? And I think that the position that's clearly actually been taken by government has been that it is necessary to support continued economic activity. And that's really important in terms of the way that government policy in the UK has changed over the last year. We've seen both the William Shapps review, which is seeing a fairly routine branch, review of the way that rail is delivered in this country, which will not have revenue risk resting in the same way with individual private sector operators, but with potential material customer benefits as a result. And also with the recent national bus strategy, which again is looking at making sure that bus services are delivered in a way that takes into account environmental concerns, such as move to hydrogen electrical bus over a diesel bus in the short term and also making sure that you have bus fares which enable economic activity and in particular support people who only have access to public transport by ensuring that more areas of the country have access to understandable low fares and regular bus services. And that's, if anything, a silver lining in the cloud of COVID has been the fact that that's 
crystallise some of those issues in a way that possibly wasn't the case before and has probably aligned the industries around the need for those changes in a way that wasn't necessarily the case 18 months ago. I agree with everything you're saying, Rob. It's been a, 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 a soapbox issue of mine for some time is the way in which we, from a policy perspective, treat public transport in the UK as a commercial or prof, for-profit activity compared to most of our European colleagues recognising that it's an essential economic and social enabler and they treat it in a different way. So it's part of the reason why we, we currently have the, the most expensive rail fares across Europe, pretty much. And my concern going forward, based on some of the materials I've seen, is that there seems to be a very simplifying assumption being made in certain corners that the cost burden of both climate change and replanning after the pandemic and getting the services right again will simply be passed on to passengers. And to be honest, I, I think that won't work. If our desire and the policy desire is to encourage people back onto public transport and back onto greener transport to achieve net zero, then amongst other things that you need to do around service quality, you also need to make it cost competitive or potentially cheaper, not more expensive. So I think the assumption that the cost burden of moving to a different type of system can simply be passed to passengers is one that, that, that won't ultimately work. And I think that creates an interesting challenge as well, because one of the challenges with certainly the UK rail sector for the last few years has been the lack of capacity, which obviously goes back to one of the reasons the case for new projects such as HS2, East West Rail, etc. has been so important in terms of creating that capacity, which actually potentially allows lowering of costs on existing network. And the challenge of how you then plan for what capacity is required actually makes that a harder challenge in some ways to justify. But on the other hand, the decarbonisation agenda gives you greater justification for how do you move people to modes of public transport. On the one hand, there are a lot of really good policy drivers for why you should be moving people to public transport. But actually, over the last 12 months or so, we've probably seen a greater move to car because people want to effectively have private travel away from the concerns regarding COVID. So there's a real question about how much of a policy push is required to effectively change those behaviours. And as you say, where the cost drivers are actually all in favour of private transport at the moment, those aren't necessarily there. And there's a question of how you change those drivers and how you take those into account in planning for future schemes. I think that raises interesting questions about planning and the cases you're making for numerous infrastructure associated with new housing. Because we face a real challenge in terms of the numbers of houses required to meet even the more modest targets for house building that are uh, put forward by the government. The issue then is how to access that housing. And you have to look to the provision of public transport networks, which will be able to serve the new residential growth. And that has to be sufficiently attractive to be taken up and used for short to medium and longer distance travel and it all has to integrate. There is evidence that provision of capacity does ultimately result in it being taken up and used but it has to be made sufficiently attractive for that to operate properly. Yeah and I, I think Howard and, and Rob adding into that as well um, a key consideration that we haven't really talked about yet is the, the limitations that are placed on resources going forward as a result of the country having to deal with the, the economic fallout and the, effectively the bill of the COVID pandemic. Um, 
he hasn't really come home to roost yet, I don't think, in economic and spending terms, the sheer amount of money that government has had to spend to keep the country and the economy going through this particular process. But you know, somewhere north of £400 billion is a huge figure. And what that will mean is it will pose greater limitations on our future spending capacity than anyone envisaged a couple of years ago. Um, which means we need to be very careful and very selective about the projects that we push forward that, that have the right kind of case and the right things to develop because... The one thing we knew well before the pandemic is we couldn't afford every project that was on the National Infrastructure Plan's list of things we needed to build. What's very true now is we can afford less of them. And therefore, the way in which you decide between Project A and Project B is more important than it's ever been in the past. And I think one of the areas that we haven't yet discussed, and which is particularly sensitive to the fallout of the uh, COVID pandemic, is aviation. And so how do we think the future looks for people planning to bring forward airport projects to invest in uh, new aircraft? How can they plan? I'm working on a couple of airport projects at the moment. I think generally air travel is different to bus or to rail in terms of the way it operates and works. Some UK airports will suffer more than others, depending on where their planes fly to and who ultimately travels on those those planes. Tourist destinations are going to be very important um, in the world where you've got leisure versus business. It seems quite likely, based on the conversation we've had earlier, that business travel will continue to be low and will reduce because people have found new ways of doing things that are far better for their own lives, but also for the environment. But I think inherently within human beings as well, we have an inbuilt desire to go and see different places and we like to travel for leisure purposes uh, relatively often. In my view, leisure holiday flying will probably return back to normal levels, but I think it will take quite a long time to get over the behavioural impacts of of COVID, even where places are considered safe and rules have changed and relaxed. The latest um, IATA guidance I saw suggested perhaps 2025 to get back to 2019 leisure flight levels. And I think, again, air travel is very different to bus and train. The UK government's not going to materially subsidise airlines and airports because the vast majority of trips are are non-essential. They're discretionary, they're leisure trips, they're things we choose to do because we want to, not because we have to. So it's not the same economic enabler that, that bus and rail are that we were talking about earlier. But I still think, again, the bigger issue affecting air travel, to my mind, alongside COVID, is climate change and Things like sustainable aviation fuels are are very expensive. They're two and a half times the cost of ordinary aviation fuel, and they're very difficult to supply at a a large scale. Hydrogen and electrical planes are a long way off when we talk about mass commercial use. So I'm in the camp where I don't really see how we tackle the carbon footprint of aviation and the timescales required to address climate change issues and get to net zero, other than by reducing how much we all fly until such a time as those technological advancements come properly online and can genuinely have the impact we need them to have. But as you say, John, now, in terms of whether people choose to fly, there may well be different reasons that people choose to fly. So from a business perspective, the extent to which people are going to actually revert to flying for business meetings to the extent they were before the pandemic, I think is quite open to question. There will be times where it really does justify people meeting in a different country to where they're based. But the extent to which people have been able to do business using Zoom and Microsoft Teams and every other video conferencing solution known to mankind has been quite effective. And probably those businesses that relied upon that are some of the ones who were previously greatest users of aviation. 
And I think with the general ESG agenda, businesses will be looking at reducing their use of aviation for those reasons. Similarly, with the climate change agenda, there'll be a question about which flights are necessary. In particular, where high-speed rail is available, it potentially offers a much faster way of decarbonising journeys of a few hours between cities. And you've seen that already in terms of policy pushes in various countries in mainland Europe, in terms of effectively providing support to the aviation industry, but only at the expense of journeys that can be made by rail more effectively being moved to rail. So I think there's both policy pushes and also behavioural things that may actually drive a lot of that. It's very difficult to foresee the future because, so, as you say, there's so many different behavioural constraints and, the, and it's the specific industry that's most impacted by the climate change agenda as well. Yeah, and I think you know there are structural challenges within the sector and within the industry itself in terms of, the, again, the, the pricing of carbon and the impact of certain activities within the economy. And it, it, it always baffles and amuses me that I can go into Leeds today and I can catch a plane from Leeds Airport to Barcelona for a lot less money than I can jump on a train to London, which fundamentally, when you stop and think, that can't quite be right. Something somewhere is broken in that system if that's how it is at the moment. So reflecting on all of this, there are the fallouts continuing from the COVID pandemic. Those are meeting government policy initiatives in relation to climate change and development of the economy. At the same time, they're affected by the constraints on funding and the effects on the fare box that are a result of the same pressures. And this means that business cases are going to be so much more reliant on policy and projects will need to justify themselves in a political sense as much as they do in economic sense. It emphasises more than ever the need for integrating transport planning and general development planning policy. And it really emphasises the need for a joined up approach to business planning, justification of schemes and the economics behind them. And I think that is the really interesting point on this, isn't it? And it goes back to John's point of the money available to fund schemes is limited, the need to actually bring forward schemes to actually support the growth of the economy and the way our future economy functions is ever more important. And therefore ensuring that government policy is aware of its own role in driving that agenda and the fact that it will be more important in determining what is a good business case is fairly key here. Um, in a way that previously just you might just have looked at value for money to take something forward, but actually the wider idea of whether a specific scheme is aligned with a wider coherent infrastructure and transport policy is key. Yeah, and I think a, a better consideration of social impact and social value again um, is, is going to be really important going forward. And we start to see some of that emerging in, in more recent transport guidance, but I think it needs to go quite a lot further. John, Rob. Thank you very much for speaking about uh, government policy, effects of the pandemic and the need to make cases for schemes today. Cheers. Thank you, Howard. It's been a pleasure. You were listening to DLA Piper Partners, Howard Basford and Robert Smith, speaking to John Turton, Head of Transport and Infrastructure within Arab's Business and Investor Advisory Service. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as at the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website.
thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode.